Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Questions about the U.S. dollar. That's why we have Douglas Borthwick. He is managing director and the head of FX at Chapla Dane and a company, and he joins us now. Doug, thanks very much for being with us. Uh, just a question about the dollar is why is the dollar not looking stronger? I mean, maybe it's a sort of facile argument, but uh, let's see. Macro backdrop, U.S. growth is good. Tax cut has already been done. And perhaps even another one in the offing. The dollar, though, has fallen. If you go back all the way to November 2016, the end of 2016, it's fallen more than 10% against the basket of currencies. Why are there no dollar bulls out there? Uh, well, there were a lot of dollar bulls about uh, back in November of 2016, as you, as you discussed, but they've slowly been squeezed out of the woodwork. I think that there's an expectation our folks certainly expected that as the Fed raised rates, that would be positive for the dollar. But they forgot at the same time is that as the Fed raised rates, other countries would also start raising rates as well or start moving out of the quantitative easing that they were getting into. And against Europe specifically, you've seen Europe turn around and now start to discuss getting rid of their quantitative easing. You've got the Chinese talking about getting rid of theirs. And that creates some headway against which the dollar um, has a tough time in strengthening. But at the same time, you have to remember that global central banks have been incredibly overweight the dollar, especially given what was happening in Greece about 10 years ago. Neither the Greece issue is something that no one talks about. These central bank reserve managers are reallocating back again, and they're taking some of that overweight dollar exposure, and they're putting it into other currencies. The euro is a good example of where money's going. Money's also going into the yen, but a lot more money is going into the Chinese currency because the Chinese currency is now seen as a reserve asset as well. And so instead of allocating money towards the dollar, you're seeing central banks now allocate it to different currencies, and that's also seeing dollar weakness. You know, Doug, you raise a really interesting question. How much is this a normalization of the dollar relative to the rest of the world, and how much is this an overcrowded trade that the dollar will keep on weakening? Well, it would be. An, I think that the dollar would be an overcrowded trade if, if, if central banks were extremely underweight the dollar. Unfortunately, they're still extremely overweight the dollar, where as, as much as 65% of their portfolios are still in the U.S. dollar. However, maybe 20-25% of their trade flows go to the U.S. And so you'd, I would expect that you'll continue to see this reweighting going on for quite some time. Now, before the euro dropped down to 104.50, remember we were trading up around 150. And right now the euro is trading at 123, the figure. So in my mind, you know, maybe we're halfway through in the move. But essentially, but before the European crisis, the dollar was in a weakening trend. It was just interrupted by Greece, and now we're slowly getting back to, into that weakening trend. But I think the central bank managers, especially when it comes down to the Chinese currency, are more interested now in putting less weight into buying U.S. treasuries and more weight into buying treasuries in Japan, let's say, and certainly in China. So do you have a particular level for the dollar-euro right now? Dollar-euro, as you said, 123, let's call it. Well, it's 123 right now. I, I think we're going to see up to that 130 and 140 level for sure. And I think it's just really a matter of time. It's, it's not about the direction. I think it's more about the pace. And I think that the U.S. is very concerned about making sure that the pace is not too fast of dollar weakness. But uh, this administration, as we all know, wants a weaker
their dollar. They just can't talk about it anymore. Now, I'm wondering the flip side of a weak dollar has been, at least in the in the past few months, a strong uh, emerging markets currency, basket of currencies. And do you expect that to continue? Yeah, they're really one and the same. So if, if you're short dollars, let's say the dollar was to strengthen considerably, maybe 10, 15 percent. A lot of these emerging market countries have significant dollar debt exposure. So if the U.S. dollar was to strengthen significantly, that would cause their debt exposure to go up and their interest payments may be unpayable and you could have an emerging markets debt crisis. So as long as the U.S. dollar continues to weaken, that's very positive for the emerging market countries that have that dollar exposure. Well, so, so just I'm wondering, what would you have to see to make you change your mind about the thesis that the, that the dollar really is in a steady weakening kind of pattern here? Um, what would I have to see? Well, I think that if there was a domestic implosion uh, in the U.S., so sort of a, a mortgage crisis like we've had before, then something like that would see you know, changes in the U.S. and a, a new quantitative easing in the United States that would then turn this, this, this around, this dollar weakness. And I think that quantitative easing, again, would be sort of the way to, to have that happen. But I don't see quantitative easing on the horizon right now, especially given the Fed and, and where it's standing. Got any thoughts uh, quickly on, uh, let's say, dollar versus uh, the loonie versus the Canadian dollar? I think that dollar Canada will continue to move lower just as dollar Mexico continues to move lower, really on the back of the fact that I think that folks' fears about NAFTA are going to end up being overblown. I think that NAFTA will end up being done, and that'll see then a flow back into Canada, because the Canadian dollars obviously had a lot of weakness on the back of fears over NAFTA. Now, Mexico has not had weakness. In fact, the Mexican peso has continued to strengthen, so I think that dollar Canada is going to play catch-up, and you'll probably see dollar Canada through 123 by the end of the year. Doug Borthwick, thank you so much for joining us. Doug Borthwick, Managing Director and Head of FX, Foreign Exchange at Chap Delane and Company, uh, talking about why the dollar just isn't getting the bid you would expect, given the uncertainties out there. President Donald Trump has said that Amazon does not pay its fair share of taxes. The president also has said that Amazon does not pay fair rates to the U.S. Postal Service. And indeed, the president on a tweet recently said that it's reported that the U.S. Post Office will lose one and a half dollars on average for each package it delivers for Amazon. Here to help us understand more about the relationship between Amazon and the U.S. Postal Service is Satish Jindal. He is the president of SJ Consulting. And he joins us from Swickley, Pennsylvania. Satish, always a pleasure. Uh, now, just give people a little bit of your background so they understand your expertise in the world of logistics and transport, and then help us uh, unpack sort of the back and forth between President Donald Trump and his comments about Amazon and the U.S. Postal Service. Thank you, Pim. I have been dealing with the post office for the parcel services since 1991, when I actually utilized the post office from my days at FedEx Ground for deliveries to many of the residential areas because they have the best network for it. And since then, I have worked with them also as a consultant to help them implement the parcel select service, which is the service that Amazon uses for the last mile delivery for residential packages that it has. And for Mr. Trump, with all due respect to him, to suggest that 
post office loses money on Amazon is almost uh, him creating fake news that he tells everyone else, else about not putting out fake news. Right. And uh, there is a Postal Regulatory Commission, which is another congressional body appointed by the Congress and the President. They have an oversight on the post office. And for any special pricing that they give out for parcel services to any customer, whether it's Amazon or UPS, FedEx, which are very big customers of the post office, Postal Regulatory Commission has to prove it, and post office has to demonstrate to them that they are covering their cost, not just the variable cost, but also the fixed cost that is part of the post office's network, which is supported by the first-class mail. So let's uh, get sort of the facts of what the arrangement is between the Postal Service and Amazon. And is there any sort of, if not, uh, you know, fact-based truth to what President Trump is saying, uh, sort of anything to sort of edify the sentiment that he's expressing? But there is uh, uh, comments, there are comments by UPS FedEx on occasions that they think the post office parcel services are not covering the full cost of what it takes for them to deliver. And they say that partly because they are a competitor of the post office, even though they use the post office for that delivery of their residential packages, just like Amazon does. So it can provide some noise in that system. In addition to that, you have some sell site analysts who put out reports uh, where they suggest that Amazon only pays $2 per package and that it costs a lot more. They do not have understanding of how the last mile works. And it is the best service that post office has, and they actually make money on parcel select from all the customers, including from Amazon, UPS, and FedEx. All right. Now let's step back for just a second and get your thoughts about how the logistics supply chain will be affected by the various tariffs that have been spoken about and that you know about and what that would mean to the cost of actually getting the goods and services to the people that want them. You know, anytime you... And it's not just the amount of tariffs that they impose. When you add tariffs, it slows down the processing of the goods that are being moved across the borders. And through our ship matrix technology that you are aware of, we have visibility to how many international packages get delayed when they have to be processed for customs. So when you add another tariff on top of regulatory, regular approaches that are used to know what is coming and going out, you are going to slow down and that is going to discourage cross-border e-commerce. You know, that's a really interesting point because uh, Bloomberg Intelligence put out some research uh, today looking at the container shipping industry and how it wouldn't be that affected by the tariffs as proposed so far. But you're suggesting that simply the delays uh, involved in imposing these tariffs could throw a sort of wrench in the system more than people are expecting. That is absolutely correct. That's fascinating. So can you give a sense of what the economic impact would be? I think uh, companies like UPS, FedEx, DHL may notice a slowing down of cross-border e-commerce, including the retailers who are selling things. They may not sell the products as uh, uh, to the same numbers and growth rate that they're expecting. So anything like that that interferes with the speed 
and efficiency of moving goods uh, between buyers and sellers is a negative for the retailers and for those involved in moving it. Satish Chindel, thank you so much for joining us and for that uh, really uh, interesting and important perspective. Satish Chindel is president of SJ Consulting Group based in Pennsylvania uh, with a longstanding relationship with the U.S. Postal Service and the logistics industry. Saudi Arabia has been in the news quite a bit in recent months. Not only is there the FTSE uh, EM inclusion of Saudi Arabian stocks, but also we are all wondering when is Saudi Aramco uh, going to file for what may be the biggest initial public offering in history. Joining us now, Dr. Ellen Ward, energy markets and policy analyst and a non-resident scholar at the Arabia Foundation. She is also the author of a book that just came out, Saudi Inc., that really tracks the history of this nation through the eyes of the Saudi Aramco behemoth. So, uh, you know, as we sort of prepare for this IPO that that may or may not happen this year and, and possibly may not happen next year, uh, what is the most underappreciated fact about the family behind Saudi Aramco that might, you know, factor into people's understanding of this? Well, the most underappreciated fact about the family that owns Saudi Aramco is that they've always historically allowed Aramco to be independently run. The company makes all of its own decisions. It collects all of the money. It's financially independent, just like any other corporation. And it pays taxes to the Saudi government. And the Saudi government has never tried to control Aramco's finances. They've always let it be, let it run itself and be the most profitable company it can be. What do you want people to take away from the book in terms of learning about how Saudi Arabia operates, but also its role in the Middle East and its role as probably the largest oil exporting nation in the world, I believe it's about 20% of total crude oil exports come from Saudi Arabia, and we're talking about over $140 billion of crude exports. I'd like people to take away the fact that this has been a very long-term plan for the Saudis, that ever since the beginning, they've seen the potential that their oil industry could be, and they've always operated with uh, stability in mind. And they partnered with the Americans and they maintained stability for many, many years with the idea that that would be the most uh, profitable long term. They never nationalized in a violent way like Iraq or Iran. They bought out the company. And then once it became a Saudi company, they expanded it globally. One thing that I'm struck by, as you said, you know, that perhaps it's underappreciated how independent. Saudi Aramco is. Uh, you know, perhaps this is stemming from the fact that the government is thought of as a pretty controlling family run uh, kind of entity and that the uh, government has sort of uh, been more of, I don't want to say a dictatorship, but certainly an oligarchy. Uh, so I'm wondering, you know, do you think that the optimism that we've seen with respect to the shares being included in the FTSE EM index and then the sort of the rise there, as well as just sort of the anticipation of 
of broader visions from the new uh, from the new ruler with respect to the 2030 plan. Do you think that the optimism is warranted, is not fully uh, executed yet in, in, in the market or is overblown? I definitely think the optimism is warranted, but proceed with caution, as always in this case. One of the uh, interesting things that I write about in my book, uh, an example of this, is when Saudi Aramco was becoming Saudi Aramco and, and transferring from an American company to a Saudi company, the government originally wanted to take control of it. The finance ministry wanted to run it. And the CEO at the time, Ali al-Naimi, uh, he told me this story. He said to the king, he said, you cannot expect Aramco to be as profitable, to run as a good company should, if they're not in control of their own finances. And Aramco has always been this kind of rock of stability there. And so I certainly expect that to continue. What role do you think that uh, the the, um, the current ruler of uh, Saudi Arabia and the power uh, there of uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin uh, Salman, known as uh, MBS, what do you think they, they foresee about the future of Saudi Arabia in as much as, uh, what, 90% of the government's revenues come from oil? This is a very interesting point. And 90% of the government's revenues have come from Aramco. Aramco has historically paid very high taxes, between 85 and 90% taxes to the government. This has been changed in preparation for the IPO to, I think, about 50%. And so the government is going to need to make up those revenues somewhere. Uh, They may get it in dividends from the company, as they'll still be the vast majority shareholder, but they're going to be uh, they're going to have to look for those uh, that revenue somewhere else, and they're starting to raise taxes and encourage other industry to come into the kingdom. It's a very ambitious plan. Uh, it's very risky, but they are moving forward with it. Well, can you handicap the likelihood that Saudi Aramco would decide against an IPO after all? When it comes to Aramco, I wouldn't be surprised if the company is a bit resistant to the idea of the IPO and would like to, at the very least, take more time Why? Uh, with it. I think that they uh, want to make their own decisions, and they're certainly looking to consider all of the options. CEO Ahmed Nasser has been very positive about it, however. He said, Aramco is a great company, and it's a very efficient company. And I think that if they do decide to go forward with this, people will see that. On the other hand, the decision is ultimately going to be made by what a ra- people at Aramco call the shareholder, which means the government, and in this case, most likely the crown prince. And he may have some different ideas in mind when it comes to the purpose of the IPO than Aramco might prefer. Like what? Well, it's said that he would like to use some of the money that they make from the sale of the shares to... Uh, fund his uh, PIF, the Public Investment Fund. And Aramco is probably a little less excited about that. They certainly have enough money, and I believe Amin Nasser has said they will be using some of that to fund greater downstream expansion, which is really where their vision is going right now. China uh, imports quite a bit of its uh, energy from uh, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, uh, an ally of the United States. Uh, Does the U.S. trade tariff confrontation with China, does that play into the relationship between China and Saudi Arabia? 
I don't think it does. At this point, Saudi Arabia and China have a very strong relationship. Saudi Arabia, and particularly Aramco, has been had been angling to get into China for many years. And their relationship is deeper than just a basic uh, oil export situation. They own refineries there along with Chinese interests. They have long-term contracts to deliver crude there. They have uh, students. Uh, they say, Aramco sends students young Saudis to China to study, to learn the language, to be able to work there long term. So that relationship is much deeper than any tariff or trade war can uh, damage. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, Dr. Ellen Wald is the scholar at the Arabia Foundation and the author of the new book, Saudi Inc., a history of Saudi Aramco and the family that controls the multi-trillion dollar enterprise. Well, uh, when it comes to investing, are you a raccoon? Are you a coyote? Are you someone who's interested in risk parity? Well, Rob Croce could be all these things. He's the managing director of quantitative strategies at Salient, and they are based in Houston, Texas. He joins us here in our 1130 studios, and you can follow uh, Rob on Twitter at Roberto M. Croce, C-R-O-C-E. Rob, thanks very much for being here. I mentioned raccoons and I mentioned coyotes because uh, Salient is also the home to uh, what I consider to be two very interesting uh, continuums of information, the Epsilon Theory newsletter and the Salient blog. And uh, let's begin by asking you about what actually is risk parity? What is that What is that when it comes to investors? And then tell us what kind of uh, animals we might be. Sure. Risk parity is a portfolio allocation that tries to use information about the riskiness and the relative riskiness of different types of assets like stocks and bonds and commodities to size positions so that you're not really making a bet on any one of them. You really want to have balance across the different types of economic regimes that we could face in the future. The idea is that you really don't know what the future holds, so you should really be uh, ready for anything. I'm so glad you're here today. Because the market is, certainly the equity markets are seeing a real risk off feel, though backing away from some of their earlier lows. Um, You're not seeing the same reaction in bond markets. And I'm wondering when you are sort of betting on traditional correlations, how challenging is that to truly kind of hedge or be, uh, you know, sort of diversified and and sort of uh, distributing your risk? Sure. So the thing is, there is no traditional correlation. Recently, the correlations between stocks and bonds have been negative. But if you go back further, they were very positive in other environments. So the key is to adapt. And so understand what the correlation environment is like today. Understand what the the volatility environment and the conditioning of each of these asset classes is today. And that tells you a little bit about how likely they are to respond to different economic uh, shocks, if you will. So when, when the market does sell off on a day like today, are you in there buying? So we're not buying the dip explicitly. What we're doing is we're figuring out where risk is and we're updating our information about the riskiness of each of these markets based on what we're seeing today. But you're trading. Yeah, sure. We're trading. We're rebalancing every day. But Rob, let me go back to your idea about what is risk parity because isn't the risk always there? The risk is always there, but it changes. So how does it change? The, the likelihood that the market will drop 2 or 3% in a given day changes dramatically from one environment to another. So if you look last year, it, you know, 3% intraday moves didn't really happen. 
whereas they are commonplace this year. We've seen the market up one and a half, then down one and a half, closing flat several times this year. And, and, and so that means that the risk environment's changed and the likelihood that you lose big on any given day is different today than it was last year. Yeah, but that implies that every investment is being made at the market right now. If your risk is built into the price of what you paid for a specific asset, your risk might be wildly different than the risk of someone who's making that specific bet today. Totally agree. But we try to view the world in mark-to-market terms because at the end of the day, if your portfolio loses 15% today or over the coming week, even if you paid a lot less, you're going to feel something and your behavior is likely to change. So it's very, very hard behaviorally to separate yourself from where, where the market is. If you really can do that and step away and, and not pay attention to what the market does, maybe buy and hold makes a lot of sense. All right. So when the market has been volatile, frankly, uh, risk parity and managed future funds have come uh, is sort of under attack by a lot of people and have become a whipping post saying that these are the funds that sell when things are down and buy when things are going up and they've underperformed as a result. What do you say to them? First of all, they really haven't underperformed a result. Our in risk parity position sizes today are much, much smaller than they were coming into the year. And so we're much more protected against, you know, the downside that we're seeing today. All right. But what about the managed futures, a concept that is sort of the momentum trade that people uh, pile in as things sort of heat up? And that's the reason why we've seen sort of the uh, bigger move up or down in the stock market heading into close and sort of these uh, these bigger swings. Do you think that that's true? I don't think that the managed futures is big enough to exacerbate the swings as much as, you know, equity managers just throwing in the towel. The thing about managed futures is that these, they have a plan. The strategy has a plan, and that means that you, you trade in a very controlled way because that controls impact costs. Whereas, you know, people who are throwing in the towel, that's much more likely to be what hammers the market on any given day. Now, that's a behavioral characteristic. Exactly right. Okay, so let's use some animal analogy because I know that on the Epsilon Theory letter on the blog, uh, you talk about how you have a choice as an investor. You can be a raccoon, you can be a coyote, you can also be a victim or try to insulate yourself or you can actually engage in what is going on. Can you maybe describe quickly for people what that means and how they can apply it to their investment thesis? Absolutely. So, you know... the idea of being a hunter or being willing to go out there and take risks that maybe other investors don't want to take and get compensated in return for that, that that's what I would think of when I think of an investor who's willing to take on uh, a risk parity portfolio that's sort of uh, different from the norm or someone who's willing to sell volatility, perhaps. Uh, it, a little as a small part of their portfolio, it makes sense to do that over time, but that's sort of outside the mainstream. Uh, there are other investors that shy away from taking those kinds of risks. And, you know, the preponderance of, of you know, the makeup of, of investors is likely to be that most people would rather buy protection than sell it, that kind of thing. And the demarcation, uh, how you feel about buying protection versus selling it really is the litmus test for whether you're a fox or a raccoon. I'm just uh, interested that you're saying that you think that the market action has uh, sort of stemmed from capitulation among equity, certain equity investors that are throwing in the towel. Have you really seen a lot of that? What we've seen for sure this year is a totally different conditioning in the market relative to how it responds to news. 
we see that we, we would call that higher risk and sort of a bias towards the downside. When we build our portfolios, we take what we see in terms of where the mar- how the market's conditioned today into account. And that helps us size our positions and helps us size relative positions uh, across different asset classes. So when you're talking about conditioning, you mean people are conditioned to be pessimistic. A headline crosses, they'll be more conditioned to sell than they will to buy on positive Exactly days. right. And that's the opposite of last year. If you look at what was happening last year, buy the dip was the word of the day. And if, if markets went down by 1%, you frequently saw the close coming in flat, uh, significant buying action. Anytime there was a significant dip, so that, that leads me to believe that that was a totally different conditioning because buying the dip was really the only thing it added, quote unquote, alpha last year. Rob Croce, thank you so much for being here. Uh, really interesting to hear your perspective. Rob Croce, Managing Director of Quantitative Strategies at Salient, which is based in Houston, Texas, talking about the shift, the dramatic shift in conditioning, people getting a little more pessimistic, uh, despite, frankly, the optimistic economic data that's been coming out. A lot of questions, uh, really interesting. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.